tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. It's just one of those things managed to wipe out my entire crew in less than 24 hours. And if the colonists have found that ship, then there's no telling how many of them have been exposed. Do you understand? I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Hey everyone, you're listening to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and today we're here with a slightly overdue and very exciting roundtable conversation on Alex White's recent novel, The Cold Forge, um, by Titan Books, which we're super excited to talk about, and we've all loved, and we've got a lot to say. So without further ado, I'm Patrick, and I'm here with... Clara, also known as Mother 9000. And uh, David, from uh, Xenomorphing and Contributor at this lovely podcast. Yes, and we are really excited to be here to, together to talk about this. Now, David, I know you've, you've worked uh, a 74-hour shift, so you're a little tired. I think we're all <laughs> in different boats tonight. But this is something we've been talking about for a long time and wanting Help an excuse. Me. What are you going to do? <laughs> what, you can't say no to that, you know. Um, and I, I know I've personally been really just waiting for an excuse just to talk about this in general because I just love this book so much. Uh, so I guess we'll go ahead and get started. Clara, what are some of your upfront thoughts? I know you've talked to Alex before. You've, um, you know, you've you've done some great interviews with him. But in general, what are your thoughts on this book? I really, really, really love the premise. Um, firstly, to do with the transhumanism aspects, because I I would love to have a robot body, or even love to transfer my consciousness <laughs> into a robot. So, so this was like. A dream come true for me I just I couldn't put the book down um, I really could identify with blue Marsalis because I worked in a lot of uh, I've worked for corporations that are pretty heartless and I've always had to do things for them which I, I never really agreed with and, and in, in some ways I've always tried to make it to my benefit which blue really does in the book <laughs> On, uh, on a next level, but yeah, I <laughs> yeah really... in a pretty deep way, I would say she tries to make it work for her benefit. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, and, and actually, I, I... Um, just just a brief aside for people who are listening to this who haven't read it yet, um, don't because there's going to be spoilers in this because we're going to talk pretty thoroughly about the actual plot points. So if you haven't read it yet, uh, shame on you. You should be reading it right now, and, and also come back to this episode and bookmark it for later. So, but go ahead, Clara. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, and I really love how how devious uh, Dorian is and, and his character is just... He's, he's a new level of asshole we haven't seen in the Alien universe. Uh, I, he kind of wrestles for top spot against Burke, I think. So yeah, it's definitely... It's, it's a really great book. Well, there's something kind of hapless about Burke, you know? Like, he's just sort of this, like, aw-shucks opportunist who's like also yeah. kind of a sociopath. But Dorian is a totally different breed, I think. So we're going to talk more about him as we go on. But just getting initial thoughts. Dave, what do you think? Um, I absolutely fucking loved it. I was a couple chapters in and I'm like, shit, I don't want to do anything else but finish reading the book. It was um, it was the 
probably the best novel I've read in the Aliens universe and in a long time. And I think it was a real, real breath of fresh air that kind of kicked the expanded universe right in its, uh, right in its ass that I, that I think it needed. Um, it really just did just about everything right. Um, character wise to no one's surprise. I fucking love Dorian. Just like Claire just said, absolutely wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, done asshole. I mean, he was just whole new level. Everything he did, was just, um, very intriguing. Um, very well, very well written. And, um, what I liked about him other than him just being a entertaining asshole was the way he reacted when he eventually saw what the creatures were and what they did, like his fascination with them, which is something I can, a lot of us fans could attest to when we first saw them or read about them. We're like, Whoa, kind of like starship troopers. Yes. I would like to know more. And it's just, he just became <laughs> obsessed with it, which is, you know, definitely something, um, you know, I could, I could definitely connect with. I just thought it was it was just great. I just couldn't get enough. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat. Before I get to my thoughts, I want to read a couple from Connor Murdoch, who is one of our mods for Building Better Worlds. So we've actually done a little bit of revamping, but just you know, kind of side business here on Building Better Worlds, our social media group. Um, and we've got some new mods in place, and we've got some really cool ideas for conversation points and things. So we're really trying to put energy into that, so make sure you check it out. But uh, Connor sent some thoughts for this episode that I wanted to read because they're really good. Um, he said the biggest thing that he took away from the novel would be the two primary characters. Blue Marsalis is a character who he struggled to nail down her true motivation because he wasn't sure if she wanted to help people with her discovery or if this was just sort of a lie that she told herself to justify her desire to heal herself, which Clara was kind of hinting at earlier. Um, and he also says Dorian is one of the few villains in a story where he truly loves to hate him. What's more terrifying is that people like him probably do exist in positions of power in our world. His fascination with the aliens molds his demented perception of his own being to the point of imagining he's one of them to the point of sinking his teeth into someone. What a great fucking scene that was. Oh my god, oh. that was so scary! <laughs> uh, it's very difficult to write a true psychopath, but it's pulled off well in the story. And then lastly, he says that uh, it's clear that Alex White was really influenced by alien isolation because the xenomorphs are portrayed with a real weight to their movement and their presence. And uh, they've been influenced by sound and light as Dorian gains access to the controls of the Cold Forge and proceeds to guide them towards blue through the light guidance system, which I think was really cool technology. Um, and also things like characters hiding behind furniture, etc. Um, and he got, lastly says that Marcus is also a very interesting th synthetic and in that he kills someone under Blue's control and subsequently begins to despise her and himself for a violation of his core programming. So there's a yeah. bunch of things in there that I want to make sure we get to. Before we do, I'll just share my personal thoughts on it. I thought it was just an absolutely fantastic new take on a lot of established canon that was really refreshing to me and felt genuinely scary and interesting. And I think it's important to note that we've all talked a lot about character because I think a lot of the time in, in novels like this, um, and especially in the sort of quote unquote expanded universe novels, it's easy for the characters to be left behind in the service of the, the tropes that we are really, you know, we're all reading an alien novel, you know, to find out about people getting, face hugged and you know giving birth to uh to xenomorphs i'm sorry our, our cat in the background is breaking something <laughs> i don't know if you can hear that <laughs> speaking of predators um you know there's, 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 there's certain reasons you read an alien <laughs> you know you read an alien novel to get horror sci-fi things and you know to, to have those kind of things delivered on but the fact that the characters in this book are so rich i think is really fascinating also i think setting it in this cold forge environment i think it's a really interesting layout 
and it was very visual. And I think that uh, Alex did an amazing job of being very clear on the spatial relationships between things so that it was very clear where people were within the ship and the operating system, all that kind of stuff, you know, which we'll get into. Mm. Um, and I loved how novel Marcus felt because I feel like we've seen so many synthetics in the Alien universe at this point that to do something really new was really refreshing. Like Clara said, I thought it was so cool that we got to sort of have this transhumanistic aspect where, you know, Blue was piloting him. I also thought it was cool that we had a disabled protagonist. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that was a nice touch. Right? That was a really cool touch. And and also the fact that, um, you know, she was a minority. It's only mentioned once in the whole thing, but it's just another... I mean, we saw that with Defiance, obviously, too, and other things. But it's it's nice to have this kind of a... You know, a, a, a fresh take on somebody from a demographic standpoint as a hero. Well, I, also, I mean, I didn't know if she's a hero, but I've yeah. mentioned um, in the past that I really wanted to have a trans character in the Alien universe, and this was a really unique way of of making that happen because you don't really get a sense of who she identifies as until the end when mm-hmm. she chooses. You know, no, I want a male body. Yes, That's what I want. right. Right, yeah, so, she ends up choosing that at the very yeah, end of the book. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> because at first it was forced onto her, and, and you think that she is shouldering, oh, you know, this is really unfair that she's um, been put into this body that doesn't correlate with how she looks. But then at the end you're like, no, that's actually what she wanted all along. Right. And she didn't know it until it happened to her. So, you know, it's it just put a whole new spin on it, which is great. I loved it. And and the fact that, that I feel like White does a really good job of elaborating the differences between gender and sexuality and how there are yes. there's much more going on than what you just might assume, you know, like Clara said, it, like, you know, like you have this female, this outwardly female character who actually felt at home in a male synthetic body. There's, there's, there's a lot to that, too, that we should unpack when we talk about Marcus in a moment. Um, mm. One other, a couple of other quick things I just wanted to point out. I love how firmly he sits it within the alien canon as we know it. Like, there's so many references. Like, there's a David reference early on. There's references to, um, you know, the, the like to, to Carter Burke, as we mentioned. There's references to events and aliens, especially because of where this sits within the timeline. There's There's all these great little nods to things in the cinematic universe that make it feel like it's really part and parcel of this sort of alien mythos, which I really appreciated. Um, and I think the writing was really beautiful. I think he's a really gifted just storyteller, which is nice because sometimes these things can come out kind of workmanlike and not be that great. But I think he did a really good job writing an original literary treatment of it. And the last thing I want to say is, and this is something that I found out just before we recorded, and you guys know I was fanboying the shit out of this, <laughs> is that he named RB-232 after fucking Daniel Ricardo, who is our mutual favorite Formula One driver. And I was absolutely, I just shit my pants when I found that out. So that's a personal thing. But there, there, are, there are many levels of just total amazement in here. Um, before we uh, get to characters, though, we, let's talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the xenomorphology going on here. Clara, you had some stuff to say about this, right? Yeah, so Alex did a lot of research in terms of trying to come up with a scientific, uh, genuine history for the xenomorph to actually exist. So he 
did some studies into the taxonomical tree and also uh, got some help from a couple of scientists and a high school uh, biologist, I believe, um, a, a science teacher uh, to help with naming and categorizing the facehugger and the black ooze. That They decided not to come up with a scientific name for the xenomorph because it, come, it takes its traits partially from the host and part, part of it is from the black ooze. So they just named um, the black ooze plagiaris praeportens, uh, which is a uh, thief in Latin and uh, prey means uh, mighty in Latin. So uh, Manamala noxhydria, which is the facehugger, uh, means hand. And uh, mala means bad or jaw jawbone or evil or wrongdoing. So it's uh, evil hand, and uh, <laughs> it's it's just really interesting the way he's come up with it. I've I've got the two um, uh, blog posts I've made about it, talking about both uh, of which are the, really good, and I've read both of those. So check them out on Yutani blog. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll post the link up on um, the podcast when we publish it. But yeah, it's it's really interesting talking about how the black ooze could actually exist and how it can relate to everything that's happening in Prometheus and Alien Covenant, tying the universes together. He's, he's done a really great job of, like, putting a bit of everything from even Alien Isolation, putting Siegson into there. It's just, yes. yeah, magnificent way of um, tying it all together. And, and even the tech, you could even, like, imagine the um, cassette, uh, futurism that's in alien isolation, like the older tech, you know, clunky keyboards and that sort of thing. Um, she doesn't even have like a, a tablet, you know, she's got a, a personal uh, computer that she has to like, you know, wrench out and use every single time she wants to be able to communicate with someone. So it, right. it definitely and, and feels even, of the alien universe. <laughs> even the technology that she uses for that interface, which is such a sort of a high sci-fi concept, is so analog, right? Like you're saying, it, it's like, yeah. I love when she has to revert to like the, the garbage version of it. That's like, it just sounds like <laughs> this like duct taped together, like popsicle stick thing that yeah, accomplishes I... something magical, but it feels so tactile and so real. Yeah. And yeah, I, I feel like it also ties into um, a, uh, sorry, um, Prometheus with um, the the visor helmet that he uses to communicate with Wayland. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem so far that you know Blue could be using very similar sort of technology to do this. Um, you know, uh, sort of like transhumanistic inter interchange with Marcus. Mm, good point, uh, Dave. What do you think? What What are some of your thoughts yeah. on the biology in this thing? I thought it was great. I mean, um, just to echo what Clara said, the way he brilliantly just tied everything in with that it being, um, you know, overly obvious or obnoxious. It was done just in a very simple, I love the science of it. It was just, he made it all um, just seem like it was something that, you know, that these aliens are something that could exist and why. Like, I love the... Um, the studying they did of him, the way he had it set. I mean, it was, it was almost like a more scientific Xeno Jurassic Park. I know it's kind of a dumbed down way of explaining it, but it was just so, so cool. Um, and the way he used the, um, 
the black goo, the xenovirus, whatever you want to call it, was just awesome. The kind of way to explain how the, the DNA ref- reflex was explained, which I I can't believe that was something I never even, none of us even thought of before. I thought that was absolutely brilliant. That was probably my favorite mm. part of the whole biology of it. I was reading that. I'm like, wait, hold on. What what did I read? Let me reread that. I'm like, holy shit, that's clever as anything. Like, that's great. <laughs> Oh, I just thought it, I'm like that actually makes sense. I'm like, man, I mean, that's that's a great way of explaining how the DNA reflex works. I'm like, oh, all right, it's the little the virus adapting to whatever you know the the face attaches attaches itself to. I just I thought right, it was great. Right. I thought it was great. Yeah, I, I love that too. I also think it's cool that he calls the xenomorphous snatchers um, in this because it, it's something that like so you know we're all xeno nerds here we, we all are aware that like it's technically not that like xenomorph is the name for the classification of like you know other organisms and that like you can call xx121 or you can call it whatever you want right um but i like that he gave us like a nice nerdy like well it's technically not a xenomorph it, it you know it fits into the category of xenomorphs but like we're gonna call them snatchers i kind of like that and i think it's a pretty cool name for them yeah and uh i think he said the one time that the word xenomorph is used in the book it's used in a very you know, it's it's a joke. <laughs> it's not even used in a very serious sort of way. So that's kind of funny. Right, right. And also the fact that the, the – and, and for the purposes of this podcast, we, we'll still call them xenomorphs. But that the xenomorphs in this book are basically like gorilla aliens, which to me, you know, knowing my background was a pretty big deal because I fucking love the gorilla kind of alien. Um, <laughs> but that they were like, for the most part, ape-born. Um, and so they were physiologically different from the traditional upright – snatchers that we know and love from for example alien isolation yeah i got really confused <laughs> when i was reading it because <laughs> i was picturing the the gorilla alien and the gorilla alien has a tail but then chimpanzees don't have a tail but uh <laughs> from humans have a tail but we don't have tails well we do yeah. but they're internal right because we have the cock yeah it was so like, yeah mm, so so when you see like you know the well, I guess all right so uh, you know like for example Big Chap has a you know a tail like nobody's business but the Kenner Gorilla alien has a tail like you know like this little kind of like bullwhip thing so you know there might be some inconsistencies there with the physiognomy of the of the alien you know I was trying to picture it I was like uh, so how does it I'm like wait what hold on <laughs> right? I'll, I'll just think I'll just think of something cool. And I'm right, still but... calling him Xenos. I'm still calling him Xenos, by the way. I, I still yeah, call them too. Snatches sometimes because I, I kind of <laughs> like the name. <laughs> I, I like it too. It, it was it was refreshing, you know, because I feel like we all in fandom run into this constant like because we're always like, ugh, like if somebody wants to call me out on calling it a Xenomorph, like I'm gonna have to get nerdy with them and like level yeah. and be like, well, okay, I I do understand what you. That's a valid argument, but for like the sake of just having a fucking you know like a uh, like a, a lingua franca here, we're gonna say Xenomorph. Um, but you know, that being said, I, I thought it was super cool. I love the whole court, the cold forge environment. I love Juno. I loved all that shit. I do I give them credit for trying something so different. Cool. I always applaud trying something different. Yeah, mm. exactly. And especially, I mean, there've been so many, even just the last few years between river of pain, I mean, there's been so many books put out recently, especially on Titan, which I think we should take a second and recognize has been fucking great. The fact that yes. we've had this sudden it influx was. of new novels, I mean, yeah. it, it's amazing. Like Sea of Sorrows, River of Pain. There's been a, a ton yeah. of them in the last couple of years. Yeah. But uh, it's 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 always refreshing when you see somebody doing something new with Correct. these things. Yes, um, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Totally with you on that. 
Um, I loved even just like the the technological considerations that he took with things like you know the egg crate, like the fact that the ovomorph was seated in this thing with like lye that would explode. Mm-hmm. Um, like just, I, I just love that. And there were all these little checkoffs. I felt like it was very James Bond. <laughs> like, you know, very, like a good, you good know. April Fool's joke too. <laughs> right? <laughs> go on, but, go but on, it's... open it. Go on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just trust me, you'll love it. But uh, that, that you know that all these things are set up in the beginning when they're when when he's kind of guiding us through the operations on this wonderful bivalved space station. And then later on, all these things end up being very pertinent to the actual real danger that that these characters, especially Blue, find themselves in. Yeah, I that's love... what I love. All these details, they're not glossed yeah. over. Everything is introduced for a reason and nothing is abandoned. Mm-hmm. I really cool. love it. <laughs> right. Because it's, it's easy for me, like, like, you know, we talk about, like, the Dronen Kruger effect, about how the less you know about something, the more confident you are that you could probably do it. Like, for me, when when I read, like, an in-universe novel, a lot of the time I have the sense of, like, oh, I could do this. Like, I could fucking, I can come up with some buttons that are, you know, going off in the background. Oh, they're in danger. Oh, like, oh, great. Okay, they gotta run away. Oh, now they're gonna, like, go, you know, try to avoid getting sucked into the vacuum of space. I got it, like, you know. But when I'm reading this book, I'm really struck by this constant sense of like, oh yeah, I could not do this. This is this is really masterful. And part of that, I think, is the fact that all this sort of production design aspects are, it's just so well thought out. And the fact that like, uh, you know, like in, in the end when Blue is piping into the power loader, um, it's a totally believable paradigm, even though, uh, you know, if if the book hadn't been set up so rigorously, I would probably think it was ridiculous. But in this, I'm like, oh, that totally makes sense he justified it by having such a rigorous layout to the technological world in which this novel operates so uh so i I guess we probably want to talk a little bit about characters now marcus i think is a super interesting angle into as clara said the transhumanist aspect and i I think i know this is your wheelhouse clara so i want you to go ahead and and take this off what do you think about marcus (laughs) all right so when we first get introduced with marcus and like i've i've read a lot of fan fiction i must admit but what i don't like is the romanticism between the humans and the androids. It feels very unrealistic in a way, uh, mainly because I see the androids as caretakers, as in a way um, that they're an extension of mother, mother being there to, to take care of the humans through space, etc. So when Marcus was introduced, I was worried that he would become a romantic uh, connection for Blue uh, what was interesting is that he maintained that sort of caretaker role. So he was there to take care of her and, and make sure she was comfortable to make sure that she could survive, making sure she has her medication. And there was nothing sexual in the way that they interacted. It was all very um, loving, like family, if you get what I mean. Um, what I found really interesting was the way that Blue – used Marcus, and, and this is what the, way, the way I always say all the androids used in the alien universe, is always to the human's benefit. So that I'm going to bring up um, uh, Prometheus, Fire and Stone, and the way that Elden was used as well. There's Elden, a certain sort of, what up? 
Yeah, great character. Exactly. Love Elden. Um, but there's a certain sort of manipulation that humans justify their use of the androids because they want to extend their life and, and their um, comfort and it's never to the consideration of, of their own creations. So you've got Marcus who is, is then utilised to to lie to the company to um, initiate, a, I guess, a romantic relationship which was consensual um, and then to murder someone. So using this android without having any knowledge of what they're doing and, and what they're capable of, I think is just, it's all, it's all levels of wrong. Like, would you use another human like that and how would you justify it? And I guess, you know, we all do it every day, like it, inadvertently through our governments and, and that sort of thing, whether it be um, manip manipulating spies, manipulating actual robots like drones <clears throat> to carry out and do our dirty works. It, it brings to mind a lot of uh, a lot of things that I, I don't like about humanity, but at the same time I'm, I'm really relishing this sort of uh, futuristic aspect that we're going to be experiencing soon with um, transhumanism and, and taking on the android body and, and uh, maybe completely changing ourselves into data and, and getting rid of our um, physical, biological bodies. <laughs> Sorry, that was really long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. Keep going. All right, that was good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I find Marcus to be a very, um, a very caring character. That's that's the way he was programmed. So so like Patrick has said before, he's kind of like Walter, but I think he's kind of a bit more like Eldon in a way that he doesn't. He, he's got less autonomy than Walter does. Walter kind of knows what he's uh, supposed to, to do when he's not being controlled. Whereas um, I feel Marcus, he, he, he knows what protocols are. He knows he's not supposed to cause harm. He's not supposed to do this. But he's always awaiting an order. Um, so he's, uh, I guess, less like Bishop, a bit more like Eldon. Uh, you can correct me if you think I'm wrong, but that, that's the sort of feeling that I got. And, and there's no, nothing that, wrong with that. Mm. That makes sense because he, he wasn't like um, – he had the, you know, the the caring aspect, of, you know, the following the, the orders and doing what's right of Walter and Bishop. But you nailed it. He, um, he's awaiting the orders. He's not, you know, he's not going to go out and just do something – on his own he needs to be told you know it's mm. more of more along those lines so no i think that's a fair enough comparison and i, I feel like at the at the end as well um but when he's uh, got blue and blues shut in cryosleep and, and um marcus is losing it and going a bit crazy uh you kind of see how her manipulation of him making him think that oh yeah you know what you're doing is was right. It was the right thing to do to kill that guy. It was the right thing to try to help me. You can kind of see how David, um, even though he's got his own autonomy, could be easily manipulated by his father to, you know, test the black goo on the crew and try to, you know, extend someone's life, even though it wasn't his father's. He ends up doing it to shore. Just all of these sorts of things. It starts to all click and make sense that, you know, Manipulation, whether you do it to a robot or to a human being, is not right. 
<laughs> it's 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 just all levels of wrong. Yeah. Well, Sorry, you I were going to say something. Well, I, I I think there's a deep level of childlikeness to a lot of these synthetics in, in the in the in the universe in general. And I think that um, Elden is a great example of that because his whole like huge descent into his final meatball, you know, final boss battle mode basically starts mm. with the deception, right? With, with, with He feels like, why would my friend betray me? Um, and likewise, I feel like when Marcus is forced, it, you know, through Blue's hand to kill Kimbilly Okoro, her assistant, um, he feels like that is just this enormous betrayal. And I love when he comes back online and he's like, he, he really sounds like a petulant child. And as a dad of two young children who are frequently petulant, it felt very real to me. <laughs> you know, the, the fact that he was like, well, like, you know, I'll do what you say, but you're an idiot because you told me to break my programming protocol. You know, like the fact he's very vindictive about it. And I don't blame him mm. because it's like a doctor betraying the Hippocratic Oath. It's something anathema to what he represents and what he's supposed to do. Like Clara, like you were saying, he's such a caretaker. There's such a deep sweetness to him um, as he's like getting her you know, like fixing, helping with her stomas on her stomach and he's like putting in her feeding tube and he's giving her the pills. And and, and in my head, especially because the physical description of them sounded like Michael Fassbender a lot, I was picturing Walter, you know, being being like, take your pills, it's time. You know, like I was picturing his voice in my head <laughs> the whole time. I don't dream at all, you know. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and there's such a deep abiding sweetness to Walter, which is part of why I love him so much. He's like a dog, you know. That um, yeah, feeling that betrayal really hurt because it was not okay. Even so, what's so interesting about Blue? And we'll get to her in a, in a moment. What's so interesting about Blue is that it's very difficult to discern exactly what where her motivations lie because Alex is consistently setting her up as the protagonist, right? Like we are conditioned to see. For one thing, she's outwardly biologically female so we're kind of used in the alien universe to looking at you know like we're looking for the kind of female heroine because we've been conditioned with this kind of ripley model right she's also the one who's trying to save life she's also the one who's obviously outgunned in this scenario like she's a, an extremely imperfect um entity you know like she seems like she's the underdog she's who we're rooting for but what's so great is that white is continually challenging our suppositions by making her motivations kind of unclear and her manipulation of Marcus when when she when he when she makes him crush Okoro's throat, it's like oh shit! Like that was in the you know you, you can look at it from a utilitarian standpoint, and you can say oh she needed to get that sample off the, the, the station off RB two thirty two because she needed to like save humanity. But the reality is is she's living with a ticking time bomb inside of her in, in the form of this genetic disorder. So like this was also very self serving, and it was in in doing that putting Marcus in a position that was existentially horrible for him. So, and I, I, I'm, I'm like trying hard not to become, not to transition into our shoulder of Orion podcast here with the conversation with artificial <laughs> intelligence. It's tough because there's a lot of crossover, but I do feel like there's something to be said. If you look at Marcus as an outwardly human entity in terms of having personhood, which I think it's hard not to because he's set up like this very loving, empathetic person, even regardless of whether or not he actually is, uh, it, you can't help but feel some tremendous empathy for him when he's put in that position. And then, of course, his ultimate redemptive heroism, you know, in the end as he's like, you know, this crawling, destroyed, melted thing. Um, I, I just think he's such an interesting take on this synthetic trope that we've seen quite a lot. And I just I just was really grateful to have a new angle on that. I, yeah. I think as well with that, 
um, it really shows because we always focus on the crew expendable part. We never really see the androids as part of the crew. So, you know, when, you know, Bishop, for example, in Alien 3 was too damaged, he was just thrown onto the junk heap. There was no consideration for him. Only Ripley was cared enough to, to kind of see what sort of condition he was in and whether he wanted to keep living. And it was the same with Marcus. Marcus at the end, who knows if he could have been, um, you know, repaired or anything like that. They discarded him just as easily. So I, yeah. my heart really, really, I cried a lot <laughs> when Marcus was discarded and we didn't really have some sense of a proper ending for him. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just the way it goes in the alien universe. Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> I was about to say that's <laughs> how it goes. In the that's par for the course. Yeah. <laughs> Happy endings? Nope. Sorry. Sorry. Get and ready it's, for it, it. But it's important that we that that the alien fiction I think corresponds with that. Like I I feel like yeah, it, no, it's yeah. something that we talk yeah. about that so much on this podcast about how there is a fundamental nihilistic bent to the alien yep. universe. Like Ripley's yep. noble ending is her fucking killing herself. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, even the heroes in this universe have tragic ends that are tragic yeah. in the context of an ultimately heroic act, but they're still really, really tragic. Like, nobody goes home right. and just raises a family and is happy again, you know? No, it's... it's uh, well, I guess from my point of view, it's very realistic the way they depict certain situations, well, in the certain movies at least, certain situations and uh, what's going to happen. There's no, There's no white picket fence there's no puppies there's no whatever you think your favorite character is all set to uh live happily after yeah, yeah no he's probably birthing a xenomorph somewhere it's not that <laughs> right right not only is he not <laughs> no. living heavily happily ever after but it, he's yeah. having the worst end of his life you could yeah. possibly imagine he, he might be taking care of a baby not the baby you thought he was but alas. <laughs> yeah, right right he's giving birth <laughs> i guess um, I, I do kind of love how that's Dorian's and it's like, it's, it's like, yeah. it's like my progeny. Uh, he's just such a, a pretentious asshole. Of course he would be doing a painting as he's dying. And oh my God. His so own ridiculous. blood is the final. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, know, oh it's so ridiculous. I want to be, but I loved it. I loved it. So my masterpiece. So, I will be the best, you know, more forever. <laughs> yeah. And you know, he probably would be. You, you guys want yeah. to talk a little bit about Dorian? Sure. Oh, yeah. So, well, well I'll, I'll, I'll go. I'll go after. It's a Dave. Kick this off. What, what are your thoughts on him? Um, one of the most entertaining characters I've read or seen on screen between comics movies and uh, the games in a in a long time just very very compelling i mean even the first couple of pages like wow this guy's a jerk i can't wait to read more um like you just uh, everything you did like when you first the beginning it was all about the company getting the books right not caring how you want the scientist he got a kick out of firing scientists he thought it was the funniest thing ever he couldn't wait to fire scientists um, anything to get the books right, get that bonus. That's it. His only real connection was to his little little crew that helped him, you know, hop from planet to planet and um, getting the Wayland Utani books right. And he originally just went into, you know, the Colts Forge just to 
for another job and then when you realize the the beautiful beast you just saw him you know his arrogance and um dorian ways just came out even more he did not care who was in his way he wanted to be the one to to control the creatures to to have him um used as they should be and it was just anytime you thought he couldn't get any worse or you thought he's gonna maybe turn the corner hey dorian's figuring out yeah no no not so much he just didn't give a shit about anything or anyone except what he needed to do and did not care what he needed to do to get there it was just great entertainment you couldn't wait to see what ridiculous thing he was going to do next well and because there's the and, and clara I want, I want you to go next but before I get back to you. Just briefly, there's something wonderful about having this haunted house scenario where the xenomorph is not the actual ghost in the haunted house for once. Like yeah. The actual yeah. villain is just a person who's a psychopath and yeah. who has at, at his beck and call the ultimate killing weapon, you know? And right. just, very, just very briefly, I, I, one of my favorite things is that, like you're, like you're saying, Dave, like, like there were so many moments where I would be – like you know where where Alex White puts us in his head, and you're like, oh my god, what a just abject, terrible person this is. And then what he would say would be so outwardly charming. Oh man, I and and I I love how he nailed that because that's how psychopaths operate, right? Yeah, is like their yeah. internal life is so devoid of empathy yep. and concern for other people. Yep. But then what they're able to say is very like Ted Bundy is very yep. convincing. You know, Clara, what do you think? I think oh, really... that. Oh, sorry, sorry you more... go. One thing, one thing I did like, like you were saying, before, what we were saying before with um, Blue is he did such a great job with both of them with their um, with their intent. You're like, what are they? You, you know, was, you weren't quite sure who was really the bad guy here. I thought that was just beautifully done. Just throw that in there. Sorry. That's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, Dorian. Now, I I dated a guy like this once. <laughs> A long time ago, and he is oh man, so <laughs> fucked up. He is a he's a piece of work. Um, so this this sort of person, uh, every everything is is a game of dominance and about about winning. And uh, like Alex has said in the past, you know, for, for Dorian, someone always has to lose, and it's never him. And if you go through life like that you're obviously not going to make any friends or connections. And, and and Dorian just relishes in the fact that he is a lone wolf, that he doesn't need to depend on any, any – any, he prides himself on being able to predict people's moves. And, you know, I, I've – having been with a person like this, like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to manipulate this, this person and, and this is going to happen and then this is going to happen – and it would happen, and, and then they would just relish in like, oh, you know, I, I knew that was going to happen. I told you so. And I'm like, well, fucking great, good, good for you. <laughs> it's just so, it's so weird. And to be put into his mindset and kind of see things unravel, and and the the split decisions, split second decisions that he makes in order to put himself on top again, is interesting. Uh, what I, I like though. The fact that he's presented as such a ruthless asshole who, who relishes his job a little too much um, is that he gets dominated by someone he thinks is very stupid uh, sexually um, in this book, which is, I think that that's great. I think it really nails the sort of character that he is. Um, 
he he is always constantly looking for someone to to challenge and um i think he eventually finds that challenge in blue because he severely underestimates her even this like the the tiny mind games that blue plays with him by taking his cigarettes away you know the one thing that he he relishes just <laughs> little that. things like that, that was like, awesome. i loved it i loved it because <laughs> I, I could see that happening yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was like having a little celebration every time he reached for his cigarettes <laughs> and he couldn't find them there it was just great you yeah. just know exactly what the look on his face is it's just yeah, ah, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. and um i i also found it Interesting that um, at one point Dorian takes control of Marcus, and and kind of Blue is kind of left to fend for, for herself. I really liked the fact that um, Marcus was was not really on anyone's side, but he was always being used, and he was being used by Blue, and he was being used by Dorian. So it it put another dimension to the whole like the sort of triangle between them of of survival. Oh, oh, that's all so I've sweet. got to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> he is such a sweetie. <laughs> Make sure you take your pills. Um, so, I, so I was struck the whole time with Dorian by how much he resembled Al Dunlop, who I I have not actually asked uh, Alex White about. But but have you guys ever heard of Al Dunlop before? It's okay if you haven't. I'll, I'll explain who he is. No, I haven't. So I first was introduced to him in the context of John Ronson's The Psychopath Test, which was this amazing book that he did on the characteristics of a psychopath and some figures who have may or may not, you know, fit it um, in the past. And uh, and so Al Dunlop was this guy who basically was called Chainsaw Al, and he was brought in to companies that were performing poorly. Like, so for example, in, in the mid-90s, he went to Sunbeam which makes a lot of kind of consumer appliances and electronics. And he would create these huge earning booms for these companies by basically just firing like fucking everybody and like doing it so cutthroat and with such a fetishization of the act of firing people. So like his, he basically lived in a mansion that was filled with just statues of like predators, like these golden fucking leopards and eagles. And his whole business idea was based around this notion of survival of the fittest. And so he did this for other companies as well. And eventually, of course, he was sued and then he was found out to be this incredibly corrupt person and was, um, completely basically just you know shut out of history as this evil dude who was very clearly a psychopath but there's something in his his fetishization of dominance that really struck a chord with me with dorian because the reality is that like we could all be more successful to a degree at least in terms of money and um notoriety in business if we were more like dorian and less like we are you know like there is something to be said for being cutthroat and i mean i'm not gonna say unfortunately because it's fortunate that we're not like that but the reality is is that when he says things like why would you look out for somebody else like what 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 do you have to get it's not you like why would you try to make sure this person gets let off okay the reality is that you can't explain how to care about other people to a psychopath who doesn't fundamentally do that, right? So right. there's this wonderful dilemma going the whole time where you know that he is wrong in terms of being a human because he's obviously this anti-empath psychopath. 
but you totally can see how he's risen to high levels in the company. And I mean, we see this, you know, I mean, I think more than ever in the Me Too movement with these executives who have been so successful over time, who were horrible, horrible people who have nobody else's interests, you know, in heart, but are able to do really well by basically just being ruthless and cutthroat and threatening people and stifling careers and controlling them like they're marionettes. And and it's, it's it's just this wonderful villainous aspect of like how do you explain to somebody in that position that they should be a good person? You you kind of can't. And so when they win, it's so frustrating. And uh, I I think that like the there's this wonderful kind of like uh, like Grand Guignol aspect to him with the blood and the painting and the teeth sinking into somebody. I think part of what I like about um, Alien in general is the body horror aspect of it because it's kind of what I'm most afraid of. And I think Alex White does a great job throughout the book of including a lot of kind of scary moments of body horror. And a lot of them come from Dorian because to Dorian, people are just meat, right? Like they're just, right. it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. They're just in the way of him. So like, of course he would love the fact that the Snatchers can rip people apart and he would try to do the same. And then I love how he's he is unable to rip I forgot who at this point he was killing, but he was unable to rip them apart with his teeth because he's a human, right? But he's, like, thinking of himself as a xenomorph. And I love right. how he's, like, impotent in that moment, and he freaks out about it. And it's just, um, it's a wonderful <laughs> it's a wonderful new angle on, on villainy that I really enjoyed and was very frustrated by in a very beautiful and rewarding way. And um, I really... It's funny because he is the winner of this whole story, really fundamentally. I mean, other than I guess whatever happens to Blue after the Seeks and thing, but like he got what he wanted, you know. Like he gave yeah. birth to his perfect child, and he completed his ridiculous <laughs> painting, and um, did it under his own terms, having basically bested most of the people on this station. Well, speaking of the the, the painting and the arrogance thing, and I'm sure you guys, I mean, Dorian Dorian Gray, that was also a huge part in. Um, and his character as well. You guys are familiar with the Dorian Gray story, right? No? Yes, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yes. That also very. Oh yeah. I figured. Yeah, that's also plays a part of it too. The painting and the um, his his just his arrogance, the way he goes about himself. You know, taking his his looks and his power, like you guys were saying, is all he needs. It's just just a, a very compelling character. And the fact that he's always looking at himself like like the sort of object, like he's always like, oh, well, they're right. surprised that I'm as strong as I am, but like I'll straighten up to my full height and show them, you know, like <laughs> just these ridiculous things. But you know there are people out there like that, like certain <laughs> political figures that I won't get into, who really look at themselves like they're these like fucking, you know, these manticores when in reality they're just these disgusting idiots. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, if you guys could cast this character, who would you have playing him? Uh, um, what's I think what's his name? Um, Ben Barnes. He's in. I think that's the actor's name, right? He was. Um, uh, he's in Westworld. Then was in The Punisher. Um, son of a bitch! I can't. Um, that's who I would choose. Oh, uh, he's in Westworld as well. Yeah, he's um the ben guy Ben Barnes. Who, yeah, he was um. Son of a bitch! I think the name Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> I'm pulling up his, his IMDb IMDb page. I think that's him. Oh yeah, Billy Russo in The Punisher. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think. He'd oh, that's be great. a good one. That's a good one. What What about you, Clara? That's my choice. I think Matthew Good, who played uh, Ozzy Mandias in Watchmen. I, oh, that's I a really or, or oh, as, that's, as that's brunette, definitely but a, he's perfect for it. 
that's definitely up his alley. Mm. I, I would say I, I feel like Tom Hiddleston would do a good job. Good choice too. There has to be yeah, this he's... underlying aspect of true charmingness to him, you know, like like to be able to get by on like his his sort of his charm and his outward appeal, when in reality he's just this desiccated nightmare internally, you know. Yeah. Good choice too. <laughs> Uh, so last time I wanted to just talk a little bit about Blue because she's kind of at the center of the story and I think there's a lot going on with her. Um, I, uh... Sorry, my son's awake so there might be a bit of a cooing in the background. <laughs> That's okay. Hello. Um, it, it, my cat's jumping all over me too, so it's, it's, really it's, it's sort of like cinema, it's like cinema verite but podcasting verite. It's like, this is, this is a real shit, you know what I mean? Um, what do you guys think about Blue? Dave, you want to start? Yeah, um, very, another unique um, character. When I first started reading, I was like, wow, this is not what I expected. Um, I thought he did a a great job of... um... (laughs) There's the fourth member of the podcast. Um... (laughs) What I I liked, I mean, I I can't really get into the the depths of it. I know Claire could do a better job of that than I can. What I liked is he does a good job... Of with with her, she's she has her, um, you know, uh, handicaps and her other thing. But I, what I liked is that, despite all that, he she's just another um, character. We're not sure what her, um, you know, what her um, real goals are. Like your first when you first start reading about her, I'm like, all right, she she's just looking to to cure herself to you know, to make herself better. Then I'm like, yeah, you know what? Maybe she thinks she is, but she's not. And just like, you know, almost the other side of the, the coin to Dorian, she's also willing to do whatever it takes without realizing maybe she's in the wrong or not. She just didn't, didn't care. But what I also liked is that she wouldn't let any of her um, physical um, handicaps get in the way of Anything she was doing, she would use as just another another drive to 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 cure herself, to get the samples, to um, you know, to get home. I thought that whole part was was great. It was she was very. I had me on the edge of the seat of you know, um, you know, maybe she's not the bad guy, maybe she is, um, and that her whole fighting over what she's. You know, and she has her own internal demons, and now she has these other literal demons out there. So it's almost like everything's <laughs> kind of manifesting itself at one time. I thought that was awesome. And she's so resourceful. I mean, c- considering the amount of yes, things that she has to work through. Out, con- sorry. The amount of things that she has to work through, it, it's insane. Oh, and it's funny uh, that, like, yeah. that she nominally she's on the space station, RB-232, because she's in charge of Glitter Edifice, which is, of course, supposed to be the weaponization thing, right? Like, like it's basically, it's, it's like the program that the company is always talking about, like in every single piece of alien fiction is weaponizing the xenomorph, but she's using it for this very, like really, at least in terms of the company, subversive means to basically cure her Bashara syndrome, which, um, I think is, is such a wonderful thing. So the whole time, yeah, there's this constant back and forth of like, is she heroic? Is she not heroic? What does heroism mean in the context of this sort of, you know, pre-apocalyptic universe that we're discussing. I don't know. Claire, what do you think? 
Oh, there's so much stuff that I could say about Blue, but I can't do it without mentioning Marcus as well. So I hope I hope uh, Blue fans will forgive me. So in the beginning, uh, we have Marcus, uh, you know, conducting this very you know delicate procedure, and we we have no idea who Blue is until we're introduced to her later. And and when we are, uh, like Dave said, you know, it, it, we're kind of surprised by you know her capabilities and, and that's something that we all I hope could look forward to in our future that no one will ever be uh, completely held back by their uh, illnesses just like um just like other uh other smart minds of our time sorry I can't, I can't think right now because my son's handing me stuff um, <laughs> that's okay. um uh, just like um, Stephen Hawking, for example, you know, it's a, a fantastic mind trapped in um, in his body, uh, right. suffering, but he still managed to accomplish so much. And I hope that in in future that we will be able to, you know, take make the most of um, technologies so that people are able to have the capabilities to do these things. And it's fantastic that Blue Marsalis, we have this character who is, you know, a, a Maori woman. I think only in the EU, we've only got Zula Hendricks in Defiance, mm-hmm. who is uh, a, a coloured woman um, who who has you know some. She's sort a little of disabled, yeah. Right. I mean, she's got but her spinal stuff. Yeah. Yeah, um, but but probably not to the degree that Blue Marsalis has. No, and, definitely um, not. Yeah, and I guess people are also forced to kind of realise that that there are human beings out there that suffer very similar um, illnesses as this. So, like, mm-hmm. Alex came up with this illness. He made it up. You know, it's it's because of years of living in zero gravity that the this body comes up with this sort of, like, uh, disease <laughs> that can't be cured. And then, you know, Blue has to suffer this just because her parents' choice of lifestyle. You know, who, who hasn't been that through that sort of... Um, situation like you can just even have a look in the u.s right now uh, with flint michigan for example right um the longer people live there the, the more each generation is going to suffer there's going to be all of these sorts of problems that are unforeseen because of the, the sort of the water quality that people are having you know what's to say that that couldn't happen with the air quality in the future in space so we've got all of these sorts of things to consider but you know blue is very driven sort of character but as a lot of people said that she's not a very likable character she's about she's all about herself she's she's grown to become very isolated because of her illness and she uses that as an, a reason to push people away so right, right. the sort of relationships she has are, are relationships of convenience she doesn't have any real friends outside of her doctor and you know, and and um, she's and she's ostracized for that, right? In the on the station, yeah. like she's she's looked at as a pariah, basically. Exactly, and you know, who can fault her for what she has to do to try to survive? But at the same time, you know, like we have to, as humanity in general, we have to be careful about what sort of people we allow ourselves to become when we start using things like you know, finding a cure for illness as an excuse or finding a cure for, you know, uh, immortality as an excuse. 
in in the case of Peter Wayland, you know what I mean? Uh, right. His whole right. crew was expendable, and um, in a way, Blue saw the rest of the people at the station expendable as well. She knew that she could get terminated from um, her her projects. You know, whoever was above her could get in trouble as well. Yet she went ahead and did it anyway, and and it's all within her own justification that she'll find a cure to help her live. But who's to say that she will ever? <laughs> right, but the, so, but the reality know. is that the implications of if she was if she were able to, which I mean, under the season auspices, one would imagine she could. If she were able to actually get the substance off and actually you know isolate the the healing properties of it, that she would probably be able to actually end disease basically so so like, like i was saying earlier from a utilitarian standpoint there is something truly noble about what she's doing but the reality is, is that in doing that like you said without even knowing if necessarily she would be successful she's endangering the lives of you know i don't know how many hundreds of people on this on the space station yeah and another thing as well uh with blue is i really like how she decided to try to get the sample using marcus <laughs> Yes. Yeah, that was cool. A little bit yeah. of a covenant make, moment there. Did that make yeah. guys completely uncomfortable? The fact that a, a male char- character, in a way, was sucking off on a face hugger. Yeah, that was <laughs> super really gross. With the, yeah. whole, with the whole thing. I was like, yes, I hope people are squirming. This is fantastic. I yeah, love it. And, and it, was so, it. it was so evocative, the language there about like the grittiness of like the sinews yeah. and stuff. Yeah, I remember being like, ooh. <laughs> Yeah, I really relished that point because I knew how many people would be squirming out there. So yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, great. That was, that was that was awesome. Yeah. And I, I do think I, I like what you said about how she mirrors Stephen Hawking in a way because, like, with his amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, he was only supposed to live, you know, until he was like a, in his thirties or something. Um, and he he died at the age of seventy six, I think, which is yeah. which is incredible. So like, it's true. Like like sometimes you get these people who are so insanely driven and so full of vivacity and life and belief in themselves and belief in the infinite possibilities of the universe that they can transcend the limitations of the physical body. Of course, with Blue, she literally transcends the limitations of the physical body because she, you know, becomes, uh, you know, a, a, she uses Marcus as this vessel for her to, to interact right. with her environment physically and to find love and to find physical relationships with Anne, who we haven't even talked about. But also, um, in addition to that, she uses things like the power loader to have immense strength. She's able to to use the environment to um, to be more powerful than Dorian, who is constantly, as he likes to remind us, a perfect physical specimen. Right? <laughs> like, like he's somebody who can do anything. He's so athletic, oh, yeah. and he doesn't doesn't even get winded when he goes for a run. You know, like all these ridiculous things. Um, but it's important that Alex White sets up Dorian as this hyper narcissistic person because it, it you know when you see blue crawling across the floor with her fucking you know feeding tube coming out and getting blisters and and feeling you know hotness around the 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 indentations in her stomach where her tubes connect i mean like she is as vulnerable as you can be as a person and yet she ultimately is the survivor of this crazy thing but i love the ambivalence and i feel like they're you know not to go back to blade runner but there is kind of a blade runner moment or aspect to this in that the hero of this thing is is really not typically heroic in any way but undergoes sort of a heroic journey and the journey that blue takes to ultimately being this insubordinate seeks and captive employee i think is really 
exciting and really interesting and really philosophically fecund and something that I wish we could talk more about, but we can't because this has gone on for quite a while. But I do think (laughs) that we should come back to Cold Forge at some point and maybe have some more panelists on with their own perspectives and hopefully get Alex White to come on at some point when he's done with his Maybe um, Maybe Dave could do a supporting characters version of um, Cold Forge as well. That would be cool. be cool. I would definitely have. I would definitely have to reread the book. That's for sure to do that. <laughs> but uh, if you yeah, do, please, uh, please have good. us both on because I, I really want to talk more about this book. I fucking love it. It's yes, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. So if you've I've, listened to this entire I've episode, really read books. But after I read it, I'm like, I want to read this again. <laughs> right. I think I've read it four times now. Oh my god! Four and a half. Troll. Four and a half <laughs> times. Oh, we should mention the audiobook uh, is coming out on July 17th. Oh yeah. So. The audio book, Blackstone Audio, are doing a audio book of The Cold Forge, which will be out on the 17th of July, I believe. So I'm looking forward to that because and then I can listen who, to it in the car. For people who listen to audiobooks, um, Blackstone Audio somehow produces all of them. I don't know, I don't know how it's possible. <laughs> I feel like every audiobook goes, Blackstone Audio presents. I'm like, how the fuck did they do this too? It, they're just incredibly... <laughs> incredibly prolific i really I'm, hope I'm that um, it becomes an audible uh audio drama for next yeah. alien day so let's let's start a petition guys <laughs> let's do it oh and we didn't even mention that this was really an alien day release along with dust to dust yes. uh, by the way issue number two of dust to dust comes out in nine days i think as of this Excellent. recording on the 11th so that's oh, um, another thing super exciting there's a lot of good stuff yeah. shit going on for those who read the cold forge the uh the alex white uh newsletter has extra uh, yes. little bit. The inside little, track. Has little tasty little morsel, morsels about the characters. Yeah, so which we'll I've now signed up for. The, excellent. We'll pop the link into the podcast as well so people can, can sign up for it because then, then you get all of this cool uh, insider author commentary about the book, about the characters, and it's just really great to get to know how the book came about. And he's a Formula One fan. I cannot – but I'm so <laughs> happy about that. So anyway, oh, we, uh, we haven't even had the chance to talk about all the Easter eggs in it as well. The, the reference to Jurassic Park. <laughs> yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. All right. So, so we're going to have another episode on this. Okay. So, yeah, so take totally. notes. Everybody who has not read it the 74 times that Clara has read it or the two times that I've read it, <laughs> make sure you go back and, and reread it because we're going to be revisiting this soon uh, with some sort of a follow-up episode. And it would be great to get some fan feedback. So call the number in your show notes, send a voice memo with your thoughts on it participate in building better worlds um thanks to connor murdoch who wrote that awesome um response seriously um you know participate because this this book belongs to us now to the fans and this is something that we really want to engage with so be on the lookout for supporting characters episodes some more conversation and quite a lot more because this book is freaking great and it's been a pleasure talking with you guys thanks for coming on sounds good thank you for having us all right bye guys pleasure as always patrick (laughs) thanks for having me on this Thanks, guys. And fun episode. (laughs) (laughs) See ya. (laughs) Bye. For more on this and our other projects, please visit www.perfectorganism.com. If you'd like to join the conversation, Find us on our closed Facebook group, Building Better Worlds. To support the show, please consider visiting 
www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. We've got some great perks available. And as always, please consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the show. We can't tell you how much your support means to us, but we can hopefully show you by continuing to provide better, more ambitious, and more dynamic content for years to come.